Hello, my name's Nico, and this is my podcast, The World Uncovered, episode four today. Today, we're going to be talking about a global epidemic or pandemic, and I'm not talking about COVID-19 or the coronavirus. I'm talking about a much more sinister, but not often talked about issue, and that is the opioid crisis. This is a global pandemic. It's a problem all over the world. And I think it deserves an episode of my show to discuss. So let's get into what the opioids are to start with. They're a diverse class of moderately strong painkillers. This can include oxycodone, uh, which is common under trade names oxycontin and Percocets, hydrocodone, vicodone, norco, and a very strong painkiller, fentanyl. And we're going to be talking a lot about fentanyl in this episode because that's one of the bigger killers. Uh, fentanyl is synthesized to resemble other opiates, such as opium-derived morphine and heroin. Uh, these substances have a very high risk of addiction and overdose, and they're popular both as medical treatments and recreational drugs. Um, due to their sedative effects on part of the brain, which regulates breathing, the respiratory center of the medulla Obloganada, opioids in high doses present the potential for respiratory depression and may cause respiratory failure and death. And the reason they've exploded in such great popularity over the years is because they're an effective method for treating acute pain, uh, short-term acute pain, but they're not as useful for treating chronic long-term pain. And they've been prescribed by pharmaceutical companies for a long time now so that's a big part of the issue so the main opioid i'm going to be talking about in my episode is fentanyl because i think that's the deadliest one and that's the one that gets the most attention of all these opiates and it's the biggest killer especially where i live in british columbia and canada we've had a fentanyl crisis for a number of years now and it's not getting any better. It's getting much worse, in fact. So let's go over what is fentanyl. Fentanyl is an opioid that's much more toxic than other opioids. These opioids, as I mentioned, include drugs like heroin, morphine, methadone, and codeine, as well as fentanyl. Fentanyl is usually prescribed in a patch form as a painkiller. It is around 50 to 100 times more toxic than morphine. This makes the risk of accidental overdose much higher. There are also different illicit fentanyls being made and sold as well. Uh, this illicit fentanyl is quite often made as a powder and it's mixed with other drugs like heroin, cocaine, or crack. It's also pressed into pills to make it look like other prescription pills like Oxycontin or Percocet or other pills including Speed as well. It may be in drugs that are in powder, liquid, or pill form. Um, so the biggest danger with uh, fentanyl especially is when it's mixed with other opioids, alcohol, benzodiazepines, or stimulants like cocaine. That greatly increases the risk of accidental overdose. Uh, illicit fentanyl is quite a bit more toxic than other pharmaceutical-grade opioids, as I've mentioned. Uh there's no easy way to de detect if there's fentanyl in the drugs you're using. You can't see it, smell it, or taste it. 
Any drug can be cut or mixed with fentanyl. Even a very small amount can cause an overdose. And I know people that have died from fentanyl overdoses, people my age, I'm 24, people younger than me, people older than me. I have friends and family that know people that have died. It's a very tragic issue. It's, I, it just makes me sad even talking about it. When, when you're getting drugs from anywhere other than a pharmacy or medical professional, like a, from a friend or ordering online or a drug dealer, there's no way to be sure exactly what is in them or how toxic they may be. There's drug test kits they have now at festivals but and other uh, drug sites, but they're not very effective. They have a pretty... Uh, low accuracy rate but they are better than nothing and I believe the technology is getting better so it is better than nothing but it's still not safe to take these drugs at all obviously I hope that goes without saying it's also important to know that drugs other than fentanyl can also cause an overdose there's an opioid that's even stronger than fentanyl, which sounds crazy, right? It's called carfentanil. It's an opioid that's used by veterinarians for large animals like elephants and giraffes. It is not for human use. Not for human use. It's approximately 100 times more toxic than fentanyl and 10,000 times more toxic than morphine. This means carfentanil can be deadly in extremely small amounts, even smaller amounts than fentanyl. Carfentanil is being mixed to other illicit drugs like heroin and counterfeit pills to make made to look like prescription opioids. There's no easy way to know if carfentanil is in the drugs you're using. You can't see it, smell it, or taste it. It's very, very toxic, and a very tiny amount can cause an overdose or even death. Don't mess with these opioids. They're bad, bad news. A few grains of fentanyl can be enough to kill you. Even just a single grain of carfentanil can kill you or less. Um, so fentanyl, as we were talking about, it's normally used in a hospital setting and a doctor can also prescribe it to help control severe pain. For medical purposes, you may take prescribed fentanyl in the form of tablets, injections, or skin patches. In non-medical situations, you'll experience a quick rush of well-being or euphoria when fentanyl is injected, smoked, snorted, or ingested in high doses. Euphoria is followed by a period of calm lasting one to two hours. There's many ways that uh, fentanyl enters the Canadian illegal drug market, including illegal import from other countries, product from illegal laboratories in Canada, and theft of medical fentanyl products, like skin patches. Uh, fentanyl is cheap for drug dealers to make into a street drug compared to other opioids, but it's more powerful. Because only a few grains is enough to kill, fentanyl is causing high rates of overdose and overdose deaths, as I've mentioned.
Carfentanil is increasingly being found in other illegal drugs like heroin. People may be unaware that the drug they're taking is contaminated with fentanyl, which is much more potent. Drug dealers who make fake pills may not know or control how much fentanyl goes into each pill. These drugs can also be contaminated with fentanyl accidentally when drug dealers reuse surfaces and equipment that may have been used for fentanyl. Fentanyl and its equivalents are controlled under Schedule 1 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Activities such as sale, possession, and production are illegal unless authorized for medical, scientific, or industrial purposes. So I'm going to go over the stats one more time for the overdose risk and potency. Fentanyl is 20 to 40 times more potent than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. Very high risk of accidental overdose, as I've said. And you can increase the risk of overdose if you use fentanyl with alcohol or benzodiazepine or other opioids like heroin. So it's crazy that it goes on like that. So I'm going to go over some stats now for drug deaths because I think these numbers are just completely staggering. So I'm reading an article called The Opioid Epidemic by the Numbers. This is for 2019, and my source is the National Survey on Drug and Health Mortality in the United States 2018. 130 plus people died every day from opioid-related drug overdoses. That's estimated. 46,000 47,600 people died from overdosing on opioids. 81,000 people used heroin for the first time. 32,656 deaths were attributed to overdosing on synthetic opioids other than methadone in a 12-month period ending February 2019. 2 million people had an opioid use disorder in 2018. 2 million people misused prescription opioids for the first time. Eight hundred and eight thousand people used heroin in two thousand and eighteen. Fifteen thousand three hundred forty nine deaths attributed to overdosing on heroin in a twelve month period ending February two thousand nineteen. Ten point three million people misused prescription opioids in two thousand eighteen. That's just in general, that's not for the first time. It was two million people for the first time in in that year. Very staggering numbers. These numbers are getting larger, actually. In fact, I want to talk about the numbers in British Columbia, where I live. Where I live here, in June 2020, this was BC's worst month for fentanyl overdose deaths in its entire history. 175 deaths in that month, up from the previous high of 171 in May of 2020, the previous month. Prior to this, the worst month on record was December 2016, when 161 people died. Prior to COVID-19, there was a 36% decrease year-over-year in overdose deaths, according to BC's Mental Health and Addictions Minister, Judy Darcy. Since COVID-19, the drug supply has become more toxic. 
As of July 16, 2020, June's death toll from overdoses is at 175, which nearly eclipses the death toll from COVID-19 in BC for all of 2020, which so far stands at 176. The BC government has taken small incremental steps to help drug users, but it's not enough to prevent the deaths that are occurring. The BC government in March, late March 2020, uh, released their plan to provide safe supplies of drugs during the pandemic, uh, allowing users to access virtual prescriptions and home delivery of safe drugs. Uh, prescription drugs being provided to people who use substances amid fears that the illegal drugs supply, supply is becoming increasingly toxic as, of, as a result of COVID-19. Judy Darcy, the Mental Health and Addictions Minister, gave new guidelines for prescribers to provide medications to patients. It will ensure that less people turn to the poison drug supply and ensure that that less people have to venture out to pharmacies regularly and still put themselves at risk and put the community at risk, said Judy Darcy. BC currently faces two public health emergencies simultaneously, the COVID-19 pandemic and the opioid overdose crisis. The enforcing of social distancing measures and restrictions placed on travel across the U.S.-Canada border have raised concerns about the illegal drug supply being cut off and people with addictions at risk of developing serious symptoms of withdrawal. The effects of the pandemic are unfolding continuously, and the drug supply is likely to become significantly more adulterated and toxic. Um, that was, according to Cheyenne Johnson, co-interim executive director of the BC Center on Substance Use, in a provincial news release. The provincial health officer, Bonnie Henry, has expressed her support for the move, saying it would ensure that people are able to comply with our public health advice around isolation or quarantine. According to Henry, the drugs people receive will be based on their needs. She said regulated pharmaceutical alternatives such as hydromorphone will be provided to opioid dependents. Alcohol and cannabis will also be made available. The substances will be distributed by practitioners working in partnership with pharmacists. It will not be a free-for-all, said Henry. It will be a way of supporting people who have the need right now. With the new provincial guidelines, people who use substances can meet with their general practitioner or nurse practitioner to access safe prescription drugs. Others can contact a rapid access addiction clinic for an assessment. People, at, people eligible for the safe supply access are people at risk of COVID-19, people with a history of ongoing active substance abuse, or people at risk of withdrawal, overdose, or cravings and youth under the age of 19 who provide informed consent and receive additional education. The cost of this safe supply will be covered by provincial pharmacare. These are medications that ease the symptoms of withdrawal that allow people to stabilize their lives and allow people to rebuild their health. No, this is an important step, but I think it needs to be taken a step further and what we're doing is not enough. In July 2020, after 
calls by our own provincial health officer, Bonnie Henry, after calls by the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, the Premier of British Columbia, John Horgan, formally asked the federal government of Canada for to decriminalize possession of illegal drugs for personal use in a letter to Prime Minister Trudeau. He says decriminalization would reduce the systemic stigma associated with illicit drug use and support people to access the services that they need. Horgan went on to say that, quote, criminal prohibitions are ineffective in deterring drug use and the criminalization of drug possession directly leads to both individual and systemic stigma and discrimination that prevent people from seeking the services they need. The federal government responded to the BC government's request saying uh, they will not move towards drug decriminalization with Canada's health minister, Patty Haju, issuing a statement outlining the other measures the federal government's taken, including increased access to supervised consumption sites, access to pharmaceutical-grade drugs as replacement therapy, and funding for drug treatment courts. This is... All those things I mentioned before, the safe supply, the drug treatment courts, those are half measures. Uh, We need to be going further. We need to broaden our horizons and we need to take our cues from other countries in Europe, such as Portugal and Switzerland as two examples. I'm going to get into the Portugal example first. I think it's important. It's a really good evaluation of what I've been talking about here. So according to an article on The Guardian, since decriminalizing all drugs in 2001, Portugal has seen dramatic drops in overdose deaths, HIV infection, and drug-related crime. During the 1980s, 1 in 10 people became addicted to heroin. Post-decriminalization, opioid, the opioid crisis stabilized. Overdose deaths, drug crime, incarceration rates, HIV rates all went down. HIV went from 104.2 new cases per million in 2000 to 4.2 cases per million in 2015. During the 1980s, to put that into context a bit, um, before this time, Portugal was cut off from the rest of the world. They didn't have drugs coming into their country as much or other foreign influences But after their dictatorship collapsed in 1974, the country liberalized and drugs came flowing into the country. Uh, And of course, this had a very negative influence on the society as a whole. So uh, Portugal looked for a new model to guide them out of that crisis. And... It took a huge cultural shift uh, in terms of how they viewed drugs and addiction, but it was a success. Compassion for drug users began. uh, Previously, drug users in Portugal were called drogados or junkies. Uh, After decriminalization, they were referred to as, quote, people who use drugs or, quote, people with addiction disorders. And the science has shown that addictions falls under mental health. Addictions 
are a disease. They're not a choice that people make. And the more compassion we can treat these people with, and the more we understand the science behind addiction and how it's a disease and mental illness, I think the more we can help these people and understand their plight. Despite this relative success in Portugal, um, other countries have been reluctant to follow this country's lead, with Switzerland being one notable exception to this rule. In 1994, Switzerland passed one of the world's most progressive and controversial drug policies in the world, which included the dispensing of heroin, with the majority of Swiss people supporting it. Uh, they just figured, hey, instead of fighting these people who are using drugs, we'll support them. It, it'll cost us less to help them. We can save money on law enforcement. Uh, Fewer people are going to die because they have safe supplies to drugs. This seems like a win-win to us. This is something we are going to try. So that's what they did. The Swiss model included four elements, uh, prevention, therapy, harm reduction, and prohibition. I'm reading from an article now from NorthCarolinaHealthNews.org about uh, the Swiss model and how it worked. So essentially, um, in the 1980s, there was a major park in Zurich that was hijacked by thousands of heroin users and dealers. The space became one of the most famous examples of Switzerland's, quote, open drug scenes. Local police were tired of trying to control and disperse large groups of users, so Needle, Be Needle Park became one of the spots law enforcement left alone. Rates of HIV infection soared from the sharing of needles, and the number of drug overdose deaths climbed. People were injecting and dying outside one of the most beautiful hotels in Zurich. The same thing happened near political buildings in Bern, the Swiss capital. This went on for quite a while. It was the equivalent of people dying on the White House lawn. So you're obliged to see the problem, and Switzerland is not so modern, but it's very pragmatic. And Swiss politics is very pragmatic. The rise in HIV infections, drug overdose deaths, and the public nature of the drug problem led the Swiss to make major changes in how they approached illegal drugs and how they treated those people who use drugs. Despite Switzerland not being a very progressive or leftist country, um, I mean, they didn't even give the women the right to vote until the 1970s. Um, yeah, the Swiss people are pragmatic. They decided instead of endlessly fighting drugs, they took a new approach and support, supported these drug users through new treatment options. The majority of Swiss people supported these measures despite some pushback within the country and outside. 
Switzerland cut its drug overdose deaths significantly. HIV and hepatitis C infections rate dropped. And crime rates also dropped. It's completely ridiculous to fight drugs, said Jean-Felix Savory, General Secretary of the Romand Group of Addiction Studies in Geneva. We came to this conclusion and decided to change. It was a huge revolution. We don't try to ask people not to take drugs, but take care of problems generated by the situations around people being addicted to drugs. Quote, the policies became as much about public order as public health. There was some pushback to this change in culture in Switzerland, however, uh, among some Swiss civil groups. This forced a national referendum in 1997 challenging the four pillars policy, but 70% of Swiss citizens voted in favor of the law, and the majority of Swiss voters have supported it. The multi-pronged approach, including some controversial measures such as legalized drug consumption rooms and heroin-assisted treatment facilities, have been controversial, but ultimately the statistics show it's been successful. Over the last 20 years, the number of opioid-related deaths in Switzerland has decreased by a staggering 64%. HIV rates have dramatically dropped as well. In 1986, more than 3,000 people tested positive for HIV in Switzerland. In 2017, there were fewer than 500 new positive tests in a country of 8.4 million people. This came in conjunction with harm reduction strategies aiming to lessen the damage caused to a person by their use of drugs. Needles exchange programs fall under this category, as do legalized drug consumption rooms. Offering drug users clean needles and other supplies reduces their use of dirty needles, hence reducing the spread of HIV and hepatitis C infections. Drug consumption rooms go one step further by providing users with a safe place to use under medical supervision, which reduces the chances of an overdose. And we have these in British Columbia and all across Canada, safe consumption sites. And we also have needle drop boxes and, yeah, supervised consumption. But we need to take it further. We need to go to the Swiss model, the four pillars model, decriminalization. Portugal's been a large success. Um, Switzerland's been a large success in this regard. I think there's a lot we can learn about that. And it's half measures aren't working anymore. There's one more part I want to talk to you about in British Columbia uh, in regards to our laws and how we deal with fentanyl and opioids. And that's the Good Samaritan Drug Overdose Act. This was a law that was passed in 2017 and provides some legal protection for individuals who seek emergency during an overdose. It's part of the federal government's comprehensive approach to addressing the crisis, encouraging Canadians to save a life during an overdose situation. 
So basically, if someone overdose, if someone witnesses an overdose, they're not going to have to worry about being incriminated once the police arrive on the scene. The witness, as well as the drug user. The drug user doesn't have to worry about the legal ramifications of being caught with these illicit substances because they're protected under this Good Samaritan law. So it's encouraging good stewardship among citizens to help in the event that they witness an overdose and it's trying to make the drug users feel a little bit safer. It doesn't mean that drugs are decriminalized at all. It just means in that instant, they're, instance, they're not going to be prosecuted for their drug use. The government is hoping that this act will reduce fear of police attending overdose deaths or events and encourage people to save a life. The act can protect you from charges for possession of a controlled substance, i.e. drugs, narcotics, under Section 4.1 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, breach of conditions regarding simple possession of controlled substances in pretrial release, probation orders, conditional sentences, and parole. The Good Samaritan Drug Overdose Act applies to anyone seeking emergency support during an overdose, including the the person experiencing an overdose. The act protects the person who seeks help, whether they stay or leave from the overdose scene before help arrives. The act also protects anyone else who's at the scene who, when help arrives. Notably, though, the act does not provide legal protection against more serious offenses, such as outstanding warrants, production and trafficking of controlled substances, all other crimes not outlined in this act. Drug overdoses could happen with others around. Staying at the scene is important to help save the life of the person experiencing an overdose. It's important to be prepared uh, by either carrying a naloxone kit with you or being trained in the use of a naloxone kit. Where I live in British Columbia, the government's been providing free training courses through first aid companies on how to use a naloxone kit. If you want to look that up, There's how-to videos on YouTube, or you can go buy a kit, or talk to your local first aid company about getting trained in naloxone kit usage. It could save a life. You never know when an overdose death is going to occur. It's something I think everyone should be trained in. And as I've mentioned before, this is a global crisis. This is not just a crisis that is affecting where I live in British Columbia. It's not just a crisis here in Canada. It's a crisis all over the world. For example, in 2019, nearly 71,000 Americans died from overdoses in a new record. That's a high number, a very high number. And it's not just in North America, it's all over the world. And I'm going to give you some stats here. So the prevalence of opioid use disorder is highest currently in Iraq and the United States with between 1,050 and 1,300 people 
per 100,000 people addicted to opioids. The next most common region is Iran and Afghanistan, where the number is 800 to 50, 1,050 people per 100,000 addicted. And then others are Canada and Russia and the Middle East, where the number is 550 to 800 people per 100,000. And the lowest numbers are in Latin America and Western Europe, where it's between 50 to 300 people per 100,000. Eastern Europe, Central Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and Southern Africa are between 300 to 550 people per 100,000. So that puts it into context a little bit. Um, also, East Asia, I forgot to mention Japan, Korea, China, Mongolia, India, those have the lower numbers, 50 to 300 people out of 100,000 are addicted. So those are lower numbers, but overall you get the picture. It's a global pandemic and there's important lessons that need to be learned from what's happened. I want to read from one more article today from the Globe and Mail in Canada today titled, What Canada Can Learn from Tiny Estonia's Huge Fentanyl Problem. So Estonia is among one of the world's most wired and technological, technologically savvy countries and one of Europe's most important incubators for high-tech startups and consistently ranked as one of the European Union's fastest-growing economies. But Estonia has a dark secret. It's the European Union's biggest fentanyl abuse problem country. Unlike Canada, where the fet Steadly scope of the fentanyl crisis is only now coming into focus. Estonia has been dealing with this problem for more than a decade. The country's response was slow right off the mark and only became focused specifically on fentanyl after the crisis drew the world's attention. And this could offer a cautionary tale for Canada, where a Globe and Mail investigation has found governments of all levels being similarly slow to act. Though there are differences between the two countries' experiences, the bottom line is the same. Without intervention, fentanyl kills at an alarming rate. It does indeed. So the problem really began in earnest in the late 1990s after the fall of the Soviet Union as hard times came to big parts of Russia and the former satellites of the Soviet Union after the fall of communism. Although Estonia itself was charting a promising course some parts of the country, such as the Northeast, were hit hard by the collapse of its industrial base, so large unemployment and poverty. This created an environment ripe for drug dealers to exploit. By 1999, between 15,000 and 20,000 people in the country of 1.3 million were hardened heroin addicts. 15,000 to 20,000 in a country of 1.3 million. That is huge. That's crazy. This was fed by a reliable supply from the poppy fields of Afghanistan. Most Estonians addicted were male and most were under 25. The following year in 2000, 
when the Taliban imposed a ban on opium, the supply to the former Soviet states was cut off. To fill this void, dealers began production and street distribution of synthetic opioids. China White, quotes, and quote, White Persian, street names for fentanyl and its molecularly similar cousin, 3-methyl-fentanyl. These were pushed to users who could no longer get to heroin. Users who were, of course, desperate and wanting to get anything they could get their hands on. Almost immediately, there was an epidemic of overdose fatalities. In 2002, 105 fatal overdoses from these illicit drugs were reported. 90% caused by fentanyl. As I said, fentanyl is the big killer right here. That's why I've been talking about this whole episode. Over the next 10 years, the toll topped more than 1,000. Again, almost all from fentanyl or 3-methyfentanyl, giving the country the highest overdose rate death per capita in the European Union. In 2012, when 170 deaths were reported, it became among the highest fatal overdose rates in the world. Estonia is not the only European country to be struck with a fentanyl crisis, but it's, quote, a special case. According to a report in 2015 from the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Ad- Drug Addiction, fentanyl use there has become what the center calls endemic, a permanent situation with no endpoint. But why have users in Estonia not returned to heroin when the supply channel from Afghanistan has been restored for at least 10 years or more? It's a multi-million dollar question. According to Ilona Gurbatava, head of infectious diseases and drug prevention at Estonia's National Institute for Health Development, she believes the situation is likely supply-related, orchestrated by the traffickers. The drug traffickers and drug dealers realize it's easier to traffic and package fentanyl than heroin, and they strictly control the market in favor of fentanyl. Even though drug users, they say they would prefer heroin, it's simply not allowed by the dealers in the Estonian markets. Others are not convinced the market explains everything. An analyst at the Estonian Drug Monitoring Center suggests that some fentanyl users in Estonia may have developed an addiction that does not easily allow a return to an alternative drug. One intravenous drug user told me that after fentanyl, heroin was like pure water to him. They have no interest in buying heroin anymore because they need much stronger doses after fentanyl use. Again, I've said fentanyl's order of magnitude's stronger than heroin. And once you're addicted beyond a certain point, you need the stronger opioids to continue your addiction. Something less strong is not going to cut it anymore. Almost all fentanyl users in Estonia inject it, though a small group of users inhale it. So in addition to overdose deaths, the country's widespread intravenous drug use presents other stubborn challenges. Estonia has the EU's highest HIV infection rate, with more than 1% of the population HIV positive, seven times the rate of neighboring Finland. Hepatitis C, which is a sometimes fatal infection of the liver passed along easily through the reuse of dirty needles, is also running rampant. One study in the capital of Estonia found 94% of fentanyl users were hepatitis C positive. The initial public health response in Estonia was to not fight fentanyl abuse specifically, 
but to combat the exploding injection drug problem in general. A needle exchange program first appeared in 1997, and the first methadone drug substitution arrived in 1999, but these were small piecemeal efforts, and the services were only available in certain regions. Only in 2004 did harm reduction services become widely available, with most funding coming from the Global Fund, a public-private partnership serving as the world's largest financier of programs to combat AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. In addition, there was funding for more widespread non-pharmacological treatment, such as cognitive behavior therapy. A more focused response specific to fentanyl did not arrive until 2012, when the number of overdose deaths brought media attention from around the globe. Police were cracking down on fentanyl. And naloxone, or Narcan, the antidote that I was talking about earlier, uh, was introduced the following year, in 2013. These efforts have had some moderate success. Um, HIV has fallen to about 300 a year from about 1,500 in 2003. And in recent years, there's been fewer overdose deaths. Estimates from 2015 suggest only 84 for fatalities, but this still remains among the highest per capita in Europe. Um, many people believe they've lost a decade. Um, when drug injection began in the 1990s, we, the, the problem was greatly neglected. Had we introduced evidence-based policy that had been tested by many countries around the world, like substitution treatment and effective HIV testing, we could have saved a lot of people that we lost. Looking forward, more needs to be done for fentanyl users, who number about 6,000 in their most recent 2009 estimate. Naloxone is a good short-term fix, but it's not enough in and of itself. It prevents a death, but then what? An overdose is a moment in a user's life when he rethinks about the value of his life and his behavior. And then you need to be able to motivate to offer possibilities of treatment. There's also thought that Estonia needs to be prepared to experiment with new treatment strategies. We don't know whether heroin-assisted replacement would work in the context of fentanyl, but in our situation, it needs to be at least be considered. This would involve the government itself issuing controlled levels of heroin to users, a concept that's been shown to improve lives for unregulated heroin users in other parts of Europe, as we talked about earlier. For many, any government action may come too little too late, as some fear there's a far more ominous reason for the slowing deaths. Another possible explanation is that a generation of drug users are simply dying out. This is according to Gleb Denisov, who's the head of the Estonian Death Registry, who's had a front row seat to the crisis over the past 10 years, and this group is not being replaced by new, new users. That's terrible to think. Um, let's go on a little bit here and see what he has to say. Stats show this as a compelling explanation. One study showed that between 2005 and 2009, the percentage of people between 15 and 44 who injected drugs decreased from 2.5% to 0.9% in Estonia. It's a possible indication that new users may be decreasing. 
even more telling. Even more telling is that the average age of overdose deaths has shifted over a decade in conjunction with the aging of the epidemic itself. Whereas in 2002, the average age of overdose victims was 24. In 2014, that age had gone up to 33. It is perhaps not just that fewer users are dying, it's that there are fewer around to die. If this explanation is accurate, it offers some hope. It suggests that programming is working to prevent people from becoming fentanyl addicts, and that an end to the fentanyl crisis is possible. But it also suggests that there's a block of the population that's been consumed by the drug, a lost generation that cannot escape fentanyl and is dying out over time. And the article concludes by saying, it's not just about the drugs. You need to deal with social factors that lead, led to these drug epidemics in the first place. The psychological factors, the spiritual factors that lead people to drugs in the first place. So that's a really sad, dark story from Estonia. Um, I hope that we change our policies. I hope that we have more empathy and compassion for drug users. Um, there's very conservative attitudes about drug use all over the world. And many countries take their cue from the United States, which is obviously still engaged in a failed war on drugs, has been for 30, 40 years now almost, which is a huge profit maker for the military industrial complex, the DEA, police forces, and the social attitude in the United States is very anti-drug, pro-war on drugs, and that's had an impact all around the world, I think. Attitudes are going to be slow to change, but there are success stories around the world, and I think that needs to be replicated in Canada and needs to spread further afield. If you know someone that's addicted to opioids or fentanyl, or if you see these people on the streets, try and treat them with a little bit of compassion. They're struggling. They're not making the choice to be the way they are. They are suffering and they need help. And help is coming, but it's not coming fast enough. And we need to double down our efforts and help people as much as we can and work collectively together for the common good. That's honestly what I believe. And I hope uh, more attention is raised around this issue. Because drug consumption sites, overdose prevention sites are proven to work. I'm gonna give one more stat here before I close out. Um, According to Vancouver's Coastal Health website in British Columbia here, Vancouver, there have been more than 3.6 million visits to inject illicit drugs under supervision by nurses since 2003. 48,798 clinical treatment visits and 6,440 overdose interventions without any deaths. The same is true for other drug consumption sites all across Canada, as well, in America, as well as in America, where the first supervised injection site has operated for four and a half years and has had no fatalities. It's operated illegally, the one in 
the states it's operated by a nonprofit. And honestly, I blame the governments for sweeping this issue under the rug and focusing exclusively on COVID and not giving this issue the attention it deserves. In British Columbia, drug user advocates have been petitioning the provincial health officer that I mentioned earlier, Dr. Bonnie Henry, to announce drug overdose deaths alongside COVID-19 fatalities. Because on the radio every day, basically, where I live, you hear about the COVID fatalities. It gets all the attention. So these advocates have been calling for the overdose deaths to be announced alongside COVID-19 fatalities to help draw attention to the fentanyl pandemic, which is far deadlier than COVID, but gets so much less attention. So, going forward, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't think in Canada drugs are going to be decriminalized anytime soon. And if we get a conservative government, they might pull the funding for the supervised consumption sites. They're very against that kind of thing. It's an uncertain future, but again, the science proves that uh, these methods I've been talking about work. So we can't go, we can't keep going on the way we have been. We need to change our policies and rethink drug use and how we treat drug users. So it's been nice talking to you all about this. It's a sad topic, but it's a topic that I'm happy I discussed. So thank you for listening. And I hope you all stay safe out there. And I look forward to my next episode. Thank you all for listening. Bye for now.